I'm Curtis James, and you're listening to Class Divide, a podcast about education inequality, its impact on our poorest communities, and what can be done to make our school system fairer. I'm telling the story of schooling on the estate where I grew up in East Brighton, but this is a national problem that we'll see makes the idea of equal education for all and levelling up a disgrace. So far in the series, we've looked at the roots of the education attainment gap. We've heard how council estate communities become stigmatised and the impact this has. And we've met Carly Goldsmith and her brothers and seen close up how school can set children up for success or failure. I think there was two people in my year that we thought would get decent jobs, but the rest of us, we just accepted very early in senior school that we'd have to take them lesser jobs. And maybe we did think we were lesser people. I can't even begin to imagine what it must do to a person, to a child, to feel that. I didn't have that experience at school. Just this absolute certainty that we would all do very well, that we could go on to have successful lives in jobs that were high status, high paid. There was no notion that anyone could fail. Now we're going to zoom out and follow the fortunes of another key character in the last episode, my school, Stanley Deason, which had been renamed the College of Media and Arts, or Comar, by the time it closed. It's where I got my one GCSE, and it's where all of Carly's brothers went. I'm looking at how years of neglect resulted in the closure of East Brighton's only secondary school, also known as the school that died of poverty. How is that allowed to happen? And what does it say and do to a community when its only secondary school is closed? I think it's broken it a bit. They get on that bus and off they go and they're away from their community for the rest of the day, basically. It's criminal, this lack of commitment to working class potential. That's a powerful sort of destruction of something that's a symbol of hope. Episode 4, Losing Our School First, let's set the scene. I caught up with one of the many ex-heads, Jill Cloth, who ran the school between 2001 and 2003. One of the things that struck me actually straight away was that the school was on the other side of the road. And for me, that was deeply symbolic. On one side, the school is set in in the middle of Heathland, in the middle of... It's very beautiful, people walk there, they go there for recreation. And this school serves the people on the other side of the road where there are hanging flower baskets and CCTV everywhere. Geoclough's memories are slightly different to mine. Yes, it had beautiful views to the sea and downs, but the school was also right next door to the rubbish dump, a sprawling landfill site where all of the town's rubbish ended up. On hot days, the proximity of this metaphor often caused a stink worse than a science teacher's sulphur experiments. But the school's origins at least were idealistic. Stanley Deason High School opened as a showpiece school in 1972, named in honour of a former Brighton mayor. Jill Clough wrote about the man who gave our school its name in her book, Why Some State Schools Fail, I asked her to read some for us. 
Alderman Stanley Deason had set about tackling social injustice some 80 years previously. He'd been very troubled about the dim life chances of the children brought up on the Whitehawk estate. He knew about the scare stories in Brighton at large. The inhabitants of Brighton did not look kindly on Whitehawk, with myths being promulgated from the 1930s to the 1970s and beyond. Brighton residents frightened themselves with a fairy story about Whitehawk, but Stanley Deason resolved to change this. He felt strongly about giving the children of Whitehawk the opportunity they deserved. Hardly anyone remembers him. No one in the school I joined in 2001 spoke about Stanley Deason, although there were staff who must have known him. All the original idealism seemed to have vanished. I was there from 1975 to 1997, so quite some time. That's my old drama teacher, Dick Hubbard, the man I have to thank for my one GCSE. I knew Stanley when he was a very old man, and we never discussed the sort of ethos he wanted, but he was a believer in comprehensive education and wanted a comprehensive school as opposed to the old secondary modern that it had been. It felt like that idealism had vanished by the time I started at Stanley Deason in 1985, but it was still popular with parents across East Brighton. I went to school with kids whose parents were working in creative industries. One friend in my tutor group is now a senior police officer. I'd like to point out that the top sets were full of kids from the estates, and some of the middle-class kids were equally as naughty as me. According to Dick Hubbard, from the very beginning, there were issues he and some other teachers worked hard to overcome. When I first went to Deason, it was very difficult. We got disaffected kids who'd been sort of shunted from middle school system into a secondary system, into different schools. You know, they were very disaffected. Gradually, you build relationships, takes time, always does. And funny enough, they have a knock-on effect because if you've taught little Johnny and then his brother or sister come along, they already know something of you, and that helps. I wanted to know, how had he led me to my only secondary school qualification when I'd failed all my other subjects? I think probably it's best to refer to the last inspection that I had by Ofsted. I was pretty fireproof because my examination results had been consistently the best in the school. After the inspector had been through all my paperwork and whatnot with approval, said, well, how is it you get um, these sort of results? And I said, I think there are two factors. One is that none of the kids I taught regarded drama as work, even though they worked extremely hard at it. That was the first thing. But the other thing I think is more important. He said, well, you seem to have a good relationship with these kids. How is that? And I said, well, I think the essence of it is that I respect them. And, uh, you know, he said, oh, I haven't got a tick box for that. And I think that's really how I would describe it. In 1988, two years before I left school, the Conservative government's Education Reform Act fundamentally changed the British school system with a lasting impact on schools like Stanley Deason. 
These changes were aimed at creating a market in education, with schools competing with each other for government funding and customers, or pupils. The theory was that bad schools would lose pupils to the good schools and have to improve, reducing capacity or close. It's how private schools had always operated. There were two important elements to these changes. First, the Act gave parents the choice over which schools to send their children. And second, parents were given data on how well schools were doing. The government started publishing test results and league tables in 1992. The idea was that this would enable parents to make an informed choice about the schools they picked for their children. That same year, Stanley Deason came bottom in the GCSE league tables in Sussex, and over the next seven years, pupil numbers dropped by 50%. You'll remember from episode 3 that children at the school around this time were dealing with a school far away from the idealism imagined by its founder, Stanley Deason. The endless, endless supply of teachers was ridiculous, you know. You, you had a new teacher every week in different classes. I just remember, like, there was so much disruption in the important years as well with, with the teachers mainly. It was just so, so up and down with her. You never knew who was turning up, do you know what I mean? So the data was just exposing something the community had known for a long time, that the school was struggling to support its pupils. This was the beginning of the end for Stanley Deason, now rebranded as Marina High. Even a name change wasn't going to convince those more affluent parents to keep sending their kids there. It's true to say, even some parents in Whitehawk were struggling to see the sense in sending their kids to the local secondary school. And who could really blame them for wanting the same choice others in the city were having now its academic results were laid bare? And this reduction in pupil numbers directly affects school budgets because every pupil equals money for the school. So an undersubscribed school where fewer parents choose to send their children would decrease in size and possibly close. Fiona Miller is a writer, journalist and campaigner on school issues. She was in number 10 as a special advisor to Cherie Blair. We put schools in a competitive environment where they're competing with each other in performance tables. If you ask schools to live by the market, they're going to use the tools of the market to survive. And obviously, the higher prior attainment you get and the more supportive home families you get in your school, the better results you're going to get. And then you colonise places at the top of those performance tables and then it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. So it's an upward spiral or a downward spiral. The best schools become oversubscribed, often with four or more pupils competing for each place. Schools at the bottom just end up with the pupils no one wants and end up labelled as sink schools. They just get worse and worse as no one chooses to go to them. Diane Ray is a professor of education at Cambridge. She's from a working class background and grew up on a large council estate. I asked her how big a turning point the 1988 Reform Act was and what its impact had been on working-class children. It is really, really influential. I mean, I think it's mostly remembered for introducing the national curriculum, which had a disastrous impact on teaching and learning, particularly for working-class children, because it was the beginning of the government dictating what the right sort of knowledge for children to learn was, and that had consequences for working-class children because it meant that their knowledge was not valued in the classroom. 
and their voices were even less heard than they were before because there was a sense of what was the right knowledge. And that was always, you know, upper middle class knowledge, not working class knowledges. But also it was the beginning of the demise of comprehensive schooling because it, you know, it introduced uh, a stronger emphasis on parental choice. And that was very much a vehicle for the white middle classes to choose schools in their own self-interest rather than enabling schools to be a vehicle for building community trust and understanding across class and ethnic differences. It's a market model no political party has ever sought to change, something we're going to look more at in episode 6, where we delve deeper into the issues of parental choice, school admissions and catchment areas. Just four years after league tables were made public, in 1996, Stanley Deason was put into special measures. This happens when a school has an Ofsted inspection and falls short of acceptable standards. External support includes extra funding and sometimes new senior leaders. Andy Schofield, then deputy head at Van Dien Secondary School, was asked by the local authority to keep an eye on the school. They said, we've got this head who's come in who seems to be making a right mess of it but we don't know what's going on. Vandine is another Brighton school, one with a good reputation in the leafy suburbs, further up the league tables. So we'd like you to go in, because we know you're committed to the education in East Brighton, go in and find out what's happening. Which was a bit awkward in a way, because I supported what the local authority were trying to do at that time, which was to try and strengthen the school and get to the bottom of what was going on. I went in there for... I think about three months, I was on secondment as a management consultant. So I didn't teach. I just went into the school and sort of sat in on meetings. And once I was in the school, I thought, well, this is not, not what I was led to believe. Yeah, all right. There were some problematic issues locally on the estate, but the staff were very good. And Andy Schofield felt that rather than bringing in superheads with little experience in the community, it was about trusting the existing team. I remember talking to the staff as a whole and saying to them that I believed fully that the people who could get coma out of the mess it was in were sitting in the staff room and that nobody else from outside was going to come in and do any better. In fact, they would make the situation worse. There's people at that school who've been there donkey's years who were completely committed, totally committed. They knew the parents, they knew the kids. You know, they'd seen a generation go through. It wasn't necessarily absolutely everybody, but I think I said something like the vast majority of people sitting in the room were the people who could make this school survive and thrive. In 1998, as part of a big push to improve educational attainment, Tony Blair's new Labour government introduced the Fresh Start programme with the aim of turning around underperforming schools. My old school, Stanley Deason, now called Marina High, was one of them. Its fresh start in 1999 meant another new name, East Brighton College of Media Arts, or Comart, and a new superhead. While I've been researching the history of the school, one thing stuck out. For the first 20 or so years, the school had one head teacher, John Werner. He retired in 1994. In the following 11 years, the archives are slightly hard to follow, but it's likely there were 10 different heads or caretaker heads at the school. Just let that sink in. 
The first head lasted 20 years, and in its final 10 years, 10 different heads. It's no wonder the school was a spiralling mess. And these included a head who lasted just two terms before the revolving doors took another spin and ushered in ex-public school head Jill Cloth in 2001. Jill says after much hard work, the school felt like it was turning a corner and hopes were high. We sat with the chief and lead inspector. He was going to bring the school not just out of special measures, but well out of special measures, because we had a really good team, because we had a very good understanding of, of the pupils, of their needs, and we had very clear strategies for the future, and he had trusted us. And the sense of euphoria was extraordinary. It was wonderful. Jill managed to bring the school out of special measures in record time, but felt this success wasn't recognised. Nobody wanted to know. It was absolutely extraordinary. Nobody was interested. They were very interested in stories of the downtrodden and the depressed, but they did not want to know that the school had actually achieved, that the pupils had achieved. I couldn't get a sense of party from people at local authority or anywhere. Gosh, this is wonderful. Let's fight this. This is fantastic. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting hearing you speak about what sounds like you having a vision. Yeah, it sounds like that. that the local authority had the opposite. It was a problem. Yes, that's exactly how it was. I went there believing, really believing in the innate capacity, despite the disadvantages. I don't think anybody in the local authority had the time or the interest in how children actually grow and develop and what happens to them if they are traumatised. And I went believing that many of these pupils would have been traumatised through their early experiences. And I didn't want to allocate blame to anybody, just the fact was they had been traumatised and therefore there were things that needed to happen as a result of that. I don't think the local authority understood that at all. Coming out of special measures was a double-edged sword because the extra funding that came with being in special measures enabled Jill to focus attention on rebuilding the school as a safe and stable place to learn. So we did not have the problem until after I lost the funding because we'd come out of special measures. Being in special measures actually enabled us to make the school much quieter, much more stable. Meanwhile, Andy Schofield did what he could to support the school in other ways, connecting East Brighton pupils with kids in other parts of the city. And so what we used to do was bus the children over to Van Dien to teach them part of the curriculum because most of the teachers were leaving. And the results were spectacular. So in the final year, 2005, when it shut, we, it was the most improved school in the country in terms of 5A to C. And it wasn't just benefiting Comark kids. Andy told me that the same year... Van Dien had its best ever results. It was top of the league table in Brighton Hove, 70% 5A to C. That year, when we had Comark kids, more Comark kids in the school than we've ever had before, and we got the best results ever. Because it, 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 it generated a real improvement factor at Van Dien. And, uh, you know, everybody was really together and teaching those kids and what, butting them in and making them feel welcome and talking to them like they're human beings and treating them properly. For me, this makes a strong case for a mixed group of kids in schools. 
Rather than harming chances, there were major improvements for everyone. But despite his best intentions, Andy Schofield met the same stigma and negative perceptions the East Brighton community had to deal with every day. Had a lot of aggravation from our middle-class governors at Van Dean, who felt that the links between Van Dean and Comart were doing the school a disservice. So they would go to their dinner parties and people would say, oh, I believe you've got all those kids from Whitehall coming into Van Dean. We're going to go to Stringer. Did you not realise they're all really rough? So that sort of level of stupidity. Despite the fact that kids were learning and thriving together, really leading the way, some parents were stuck in deep-seated prejudices passed down by generations, spewed out by some tabloids and beamed onto our TV screens as benefit street-style poverty porn. That stigma we heard so much about in episode 2 was rearing its ugly head, and the report commissioned by headteacher Jill Cloth in 2003 really brought the stigma against Whitehawk out into the open. One of the people close to Comart in its final years let me read through a copy of this report called Perceptions of Comart and Factors Influencing Choice of Secondary School in Brighton and Hove. Parts of this report were leaked to the press and included in Jill's book. It lays bare how the Whitehawk community is seen by the rest of the city. The objective of this piece of work was to understand the image of Comart among children and parents in Brighton and Hove and how these impact choice of school. I have to say, when I first read through the report, I felt sick. To help identify children's overall image of Comart compared with their first choice school, they were asked to describe each as an animal. First choice schools. A tiger that is happy and playful, but nothing else can eat. A big fluffy rabbit which is healthy, fit and happy, friendly and cosy. A cheetah fit, sporty and good at running. The best. Comart. A slug. Stupid, dirty and slimy, but slowly getting better. Slow at education. A crocodile. Big and scary and living in the swamp of Whitehawk. A monkey running around wild, not strict enough. A sneaky rat with a bad reputation. Respondents were asked to complete the following sentence. A child who goes to Dorothy Stringer is... Cool, clever, a good person, very nice and intelligent. A child who goes to Van Dean is... Grown up, smart and lucky. A child who goes to Comart is... Stupid, not good at attendance. Rough, naughty, unkind. Not very well off. Sad and lonely. Unlucky. Not amazingly intelligent. Parents were asked to give their views on Comart, with the following findings. Social deprivation, Whitehawk council estate, trouble, disadvantaged children, social exclusion, dumping ground, struggling, breeding children for NVQs, not GCSEs. When I first read this report, I wondered how it was received by the local authority and about the choices they had. I wondered if they considered just how damaging these kinds of perceptions were to a city and its families. I wondered if they considered doing some work to support some kind of positive change around that stigma and those perceptions. I'm not suggesting no one at the local authority considered this, but I'm not aware of any concrete action to deal with the stigma laid bare in the report. And it's hard to imagine this wasn't just another nail in the coffin for the school. My gut feeling after reading this was one of complete sadness and anger that some of the city's children and parents could feel this way about kids 
not really different to them, apart from living in a postcode where disadvantage was baked into people's lives. Jill Clough observed just how deep the stigma and negative perceptions ran and the depressing impact they had on the community. I very strongly picked up the notion when I arrived at Comart that there was a stigma attached to being on the estate and coming to the school. I realised that a lot of the staff felt stigmatised. When I met members of the local authority, I had to work quite hard to persuade them that I had a legitimate voice. Jill told me about a conversation she had with a senior education council officer about some of her ideas to turn the school around. Apparently, he said, how could they possibly work in a school like this with children like those? She felt like everyone had deserted the community. Nobody wanted to be there. The stigma and middle-class flight was having another disastrous effect. The city council had embarked on a PFI project to rebuild some of the city's schools. Private finance initiatives, or PFIs, were introduced by the Conservative government in 1992. Put simply, PFI enabled Brighton and Hove City Council to upgrade school buildings, with the private sector investing the upfront cash. The City Council then paid a monthly fee to the private company, who also took over responsibility for things like maintenance and cleaning. The problem? That monthly fee was based on hugely inflated pupil numbers at Comart, numbers that were never going to be attainable as quickly as they were needed. So the school had a bunch of new classrooms, but more and more parents were deciding not to send their children there. It really was the final nail in the coffin for the school. Jill Clough was one of the heads responsible for managing this doomed PFI deal. She told me she could barely focus on being a head, as she'd also become a full-time building project manager. Ultimately, the stress saw Jill signed off work by her doctor after less than two years in the job. And my family eventually said to me, this job is killing you. If you don't stop, you'll be dead. I had a very clear sense of scapegoating going on, not for me personally, but the entire estate. And the people and the families are being scapegoated. I feel very much as if, and that goes on, that the poor and the malnourished and the traumatised end up being so told they are somehow responsible for it. And that carries on, it's not going away. When speaking to parents whose children went to the school, one told me she felt like the local authority had decided it was an irretrievable position, that it felt like it was a scar, an open wound. She said the fact that people didn't want to send their kids there became too much of an embarrassment for the council. Andy Schofield has his own ideas on what went wrong. It didn't take me very long to work out what was going on behind the scenes. And my diagnosis was that the trust was zero, that the school needed to be left alone and properly supported to be itself and to be a school which served that community, Whitehawk, in East Brighton. And that's what it needed to do. Everything we know about school improvement says that there are systemic issues in those communities which hamper schools competing on the same metrics that your leafy suburbs can compete on, but there are still schools that can do it. And my argument was, we know where they are. We know where these schools are elsewhere in the country. We should copy what they're doing. None of them were doing these reinvention things and media arts nonsense and talking about crap like that. 
and being embarrassed about the communities. It's clear to me that the outcomes for young people in the communities of Whitehawk, Manor Farm and the Bristol Estate have for too long been left unaddressed or that attempts to address them haven't tackled the issue. We must review the actions we've taken previously so that we don't repeat the same mistakes. Back in episode one, we heard the deputy leader of the council, Hannah Albrook, apologising to East Brighton at a March 2019 committee meeting. When I sat down to speak with Hannah in November 2022, I asked her why. I think decisions over successive councils have been made that have not reflected the needs of communities or not reflected the needs of all communities. I also think that you can't talk about these issues without recognising bias that people have towards certain communities and that people in positions of power have had towards certain communities over long periods of time. And I think that the council needed to make a recognition that we haven't got things right and that we needed to change how we were focusing and we needed to recognise that there's more to be done. So, many people in the dying days of Comart were aware of the stigma and lack of support the school received. And now we have the deputy leader of the local authority, who is also chair of the Young People and Skills Committee, admitting that there is bias towards certain communities. Is it any wonder things don't feel any different to back in 2005, when the school closed? As a campaign, Class Divide is constantly told that everything possible is being done to close the attainment gap in Brighton and Hove. In a recent meeting with senior education officers, we were told about some exciting new initiatives that would really help support young people in our community. But not long after, we heard through a source that some of these initiatives hadn't even been offered to our local primary schools, that mistakes had been made and lessons were learnt. Nothing changes till it changes. I don't really need to tell you what happened next in the story of our ill-fated community secondary school. Once the likelihood of the school closing came up, we campaigned very strongly to keep the school open. We'll save the school and we'll grow it as a community school for the estate. The community battled and fought to keep the school open, but it always felt like its closure was a foregone conclusion. It was finally closed and that was the end of it. Local newspaper, The Evening Argus, reported on the closure. The article stated, The human cost of closing a failing school will last a lifetime, parents have been warned. And, pupils sobbed as education leaders made the final decisions to shut Comart. The piece went on to say, Suzanne Ryan, a counsellor at Comart, said many had difficult family lives, and the school's caring atmosphere provided their only stability. She said, The children come from really different backgrounds, and many have fragmented home lives. I'm very worried about the effect on their mental health of closing the school. They are internalising their anger, leading to stress and self-harm. In the article, councillor Pat Hawkes, who chairs the Children, Families and Schools Committee, said, The pupils will be moved in friendship and work groups depending on where they want to go. I believe closing the school has to be the right decision because the majority of local parents have made it quite clear in recent years they do not want their children to go there. That may have been the local authority line, but former head Jill Cloth felt very differently. It was very hard not to feel that the local authority basically felt 
there's something not quite right about these people and this estate. And we need to split them up and send them in as many directions as possible. But by the way, when they get to those other schools, they will still go into the White Hawk stream. Promises were made by the local authority that children would get a better education once Comark closed. But the minute you lose a community school is the minute the kids disappear into the rest of the system, making it very hard to track attainment for all the Whitehawk children dispersed across the city. It wasn't until local community youth centre, the Crew Club, put in a Freedom of Information request in 2019 that we realised just how bad things have continued to be for young people's education. Since Comart's closure, the data revealed that attainment actually got worse and that there had been a consistent gap of around 32% between children from East Brighton and kids in the rest of the city when it comes to basic GCSE attainment rates. But it's not just about GCSE attainment. Here's Carly Goldsmith's mum, Debbie. I think it's broken it a bit. Because, you know, as you said, they'd all go to school. We knew all the kids. All their friends would come and from school into the into this house, especially, you know, and I'd feed them and all the rest of it. Um, but now you just don't see that anymore. They get on that bus and off they go and they're away from their community for the rest of the day, basically. And the cost of bussing those kids to new schools is scandalous and a financial disaster for parents already under immense financial strain. Class Divide calculated parents could have handed over nearly £2 million since 2005 to Brighton and Hove Buses, a local private bus company, or in equivalent transport costs to get their kids to school and back. £2 million, leaving Whitehawk, Bristol Estate and Manor Farm just to get to school. And the costs aren't just financial. I spoke with one young student who told me about her concerns for safety. In Whitehawk, my dad knows everyone, so I know, like, houses and where they live, so I've got safe spots. But now we have to go to Woodingdean or Rottingdean. There's less people, so I don't know my safe key points. It also means that many of the secondary school students here have to get up at 6am to catch a bus to school. I live um, an hour away from my school, so I get up around 6, I get dressed, have breakfast, then brush my teeth, leave around quarter past seven I get the bus to school which yeah it takes about 45 minutes to an hour they had a school bus at a start which was like perfect and then eventually they took it off and then like as they started to take it off got more harder to get to school and I have to wake up at six to six about six six thirty and leave mine out the door at seven and then if you're late get detention it's just stressful just a reminder our local school used to be, at most, a 20-minute walk away from anywhere in East Brighton, meaning kids could get an extra 90 minutes of sleep and still walk to school in time. I sleep about two of my lessons, but then there's well, it's like some lessons I look forward to because it's actually nice. So some are mates and some are just like, I like the work. But yeah, other than that, it's sleep, normally. Is that because, I mean, you're getting up early to go to school, right? It's a long day. Like, do you just get to the afternoon and you're like, right, I'm done? Every period five, there's someone who gets in isolation or gets kicked out because everyone's just so tired. I think it especially happens Fridays, just the whole of Friday, and 
think those are the prime times where everyone's a bit naughty. Thomas McMorran, head teacher at City Academy Whitehawk, has concerns about the impact early mornings and long bus journeys are having on children's lives. I think it is very challenging for children from Whitehawk as young people to need to make such, and this sounds hyperbolic, but I don't believe it is, such tricky journeys to get to secondary school. I would argue it's much too soon to be making such a tricky journey that requires such resilience and independence at that stage of their learning career. And I wonder if that sets them up to be successful as learners at nine o'clock in the morning. Many of us who have grown up on the estates of East Brighton talk about feeling like we have to leave Whitehawk to do something good in life, that success is something only achievable outside of the community we grew up in. The closure of the local secondary school almost confirmed those feelings. What does it say to a community when you shut down its school? Here's Cambridge academic researcher and higher education teacher, Professor Diane Ray. I think that's a very powerful image, isn't it? Coming from the coal mining community, (laughs) we lost a whole lot of symbols of community and collectivity. We have a very tenuous, fragile commitment to the education of the working classes in England. I think we had that when my grandparents were, you know, hardly going to school at all and no one cared. But we have it now because an awful lot of working class children may be attending school, but they're not being educated. So even when we've got the buildings, we haven't got any real education of working class children and young people. It's it's criminal, isn't it? It's criminal, this lack of commitment to working class potential and thriving, flourishing. I think that the lack of a building, you know, you can see that that's a powerful sort of destruction of something that's a symbol of hope. And I I think that that's something that's also being powerfully eroded as well. We have a community without its own secondary school. It feels like a void in a place so in need of nurturing, support, and most importantly, empowerment. What impact has this had on people in East Brighton? It has limited everything, really. There's not many other jobs or many other things I could have done because I I didn't get no education, so... I basically thought I was on my own, really. I didn't have no... no... no confidence, no, no drive, no ambition, it all just went out the window. So yeah, it limits limits everything. It limits everything I can do still now. In the next episode, we'll be returning to Carly and her brothers to find out how experiences at school can impact the rest of your life. Core episodes will be released every other week, And on the weeks in between, I'll be getting together with Carly Goldsmith to talk about some of the things that came up in the most recent episode. So make sure you're subscribed on your podcast app to access that. And if you're about to hit that subscribe button, please consider leaving us a rating and review. It really helps spread the word. Procrastination.
Class Divide was written and produced by me, Curtis James. The executive producer is Eve Streeter. Location recording, sound design, post-production and mixing is by Simon James, with editorial support by Carly Goldsmith. Music in the series was kindly donated by Olivia Aleri, Marja Newt, Room, Neil Hale, Salvatore Macatante, Polypores, Minor Pieces, Clarice Jensen, Shida Shahibi, Max de Wardner, Simon James, Rutger Hodemakers, Toy Drum, Trams, Benjamin Harrison, and the official body. The series was funded by necessity, and if you'd like to support the Class Divide campaign, follow at Divide Class on Twitter and Instagram, or visit the website classdivide.co.uk. I'd like to say thank you to everyone who's taken part. This series couldn't have happened without many people putting their trust in me to tell these important stories. There are also people who shared their stories with me and whose voices haven't ended up in the series. Many of the things those people share with me are definitely here as ideas and inspiration. I also need to thank the Crew Club, Daniel Nathan, Alex at Fat Cat Records, Colin at Castles in Space and Jimmy Berlianto for their help and support. Please help spread the word by subscribing to the podcast and leaving us a rating and review. Until next time, I'll see you next week.